0: Thank you.
1: Can you hear me all right? Can you hear me? What What does that mean? Yes? Yes. yes. <laughs> Good. Uh, welcome to the 33rd Annual Eunice Belga Memorial Lectures. We're grateful to Eunice's family and friends for making this distinguished lecture series possible and for enabling us to commemorate and celebrate Eunice's life by continuing the work that she loves so well, we are delighted today that Eunice's aunt Dorothy Belgam Knight is uh, Dorothy Belgum Knight is able to be with us today. Uh, Eunice fell in love with philosophy here at Saint Olaf. After graduating in 1967, she went on to earn her Ph.D. at Harvard University. Uh, The Harvard Philosophy Department chose her dissertation on the topic of weakness of the will as the best completed that year in 1976, entitled Knowing Better, An Account of Acracia. This was later published by Garland Publishing in 1990. Eunice worked from the conviction that philosophy really does have something to do with how we live our lives. The thesis is, uh, from its very first sentence, um, uh, something that reflected this point of view. And I'm going to quote to you the opening sentence of Eunice's dissertation, which I've always loved. Um, This thesis is the result of a practical as well as a theoretical interest in the regrettably familiar phenomenon of akrasia, otherwise known as knowing the better and doing the worse. Eunice went on to teach at Trinity College and at the College of William and Mary, where she continued to exercise her conviction that philosophy matters. The groundbreaking course, on the philosophy of the sexes that she developed and team taught with James Harris also exemplified that conviction. She contributed so much to the profession and to her students. While the Eunice Bilgum Memorial Lectures may be on any topic, we do make a special effort to choose topics that would have interested her. I know that she would have been keenly interested in the topic of this year's lectures. And we are delighted this year to welcome Dr. Rachel Cohen of State University New York at Albany, speaking on the sentiment based moral philosophy of Hume. And now I'll ask my colleague Corliss Swain to introduce her to you.
2: It is a great pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Rachel Cohen. Professor Cohen is an internationally known Hume scholar who specializes in ethics, Hume's moral philosophy, and the philosophy of action. She's published numerous articles on Hume's philosophy, also on issues in bioethics, and she contributed the entry on Hume's moral and political philosophy to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. She's the author of two books, Hume's Morality, Feeling, and Fabrication, published by Oxford University Press in 2008, a monograph that explores Hume's metaethics and his theory of the artificial virtues. And also, Hume Moral and Political Philosophy, which is an anthology of previously published essays by present-day authors, uh, which was published by Ashgate Dartmouth Press in uh, 2001. Rachel Cohen received her PhD from UCLA. Her dissertation entitled The Rationality of Moral Conduct, a preliminary study, was supervised by Philippa Foot. And some of you have been studying Philippa Foot, so it's kind of a neat connection. Professor Cohen began her teaching career at Pitzer College, a nationally ranked liberal arts college in the Los Angeles area. She has taught at Mount St. Mary's College, the University of California at Irvine, and Stanford University. She is now at the University of Albany, SUNY where she teaches graduate courses in moral theory and undergraduate courses in all areas of ethics and early modern philosophy. Rachel is not just a first-rate philosopher and Hume scholar. She's also a wonderful person whose wise words, wry sense of humor, and generous gift of her time, even late into the night when she had to teach the next day, helped to see me through a year of cancer treatment. David Hume was known to some of his friends as Le Bon David, the good David. Rachel follows in his footsteps. So if anyone is qualified to speak about David Hume's views about virtue as a means to happiness, both by virtue of her academic training and talents, and by virtue of an intimate and personal familiarity with virtue, it is Rachel Cohen. Please help me, join me in welcoming Rachel.
3: I'm touched and a bit embarrassed by that lovely introduction from Professor Swain, and as you'll see when I come to the end of my talk, you'll see the significance of this. Uh, I think whatever virtue I possess I owe to associating with people of virtue, which is in keeping with my interpretation of Hume's account of how we get to be virtuous. I'm very happy to be here to honor the memory of Dr. Eunice Belgum. She was an impressive individual and a credit to St. Olaf College and also one of, the first two, one of the first women to break into the boys club that was the Harvard University graduate program in philosophy. I'm very grateful for the warm hospitality of the philosophy department since I arrived as well. Uh, David Hume was born in 1711, which makes this year the 300th anniversary of his birth. So I welcome this opportunity to honor Eunice Belgum in a way I hope she would approve of by examining some issues in Hume's moral philosophy. What I'm going to do is talk about two of his works, The Inquiry Concerning the Principles of Morals and The Treatise of Human Nature. The treatise was written well before The Inquiry Concerning the Principles of Morals, but I'm going to talk about them in reverse order and talk about The Inquiry today and The Treatise tomorrow. And I can do this, I can get away with this, because very few people read the treatise, even though it's Hume's great work. Very few people read it. The few who did didn't understand it very well. And so he, he wrote two books with inquiry in the title, trying to make the ideas of the treatise more accessible to his, to his educated audience. So he didn't presuppose anything about the treatise any knowledge of the treatise in his audience. So if you don't know the treatise, that's fine. You can follow everything I say today. And next time, it's also fine, but (laughs) tomorrow I'll talk about the treatise. You have a handout before you, um, and what you really need to pay attention to is everything above the, the dashed line. That gives you an outline of my talk and a few points that might be useful. Below the dashed line are lots of quotations, passages from the inquiry concerning the principles of morals. And if you're curious about the context and want to know more of what I quote, you're welcome to look at those, but it's not necessary. All right, so here's the first section, the introduction. Though many divines and a few philosophers have depicted the virtuous life as full of austerity and rigors, David Hume claims in the concluding ninth section of his inquiry concerning the principles of morals, that his own ethical theory enables him to show that the life of virtue is a happy and delightful life, much happier than a life of vice, and that scrupulously moral conduct is in the interest of every individual. That's in the first two passages on your handout uh, from the inquiry, section nine, paragraphs 14 and 16, in case you're interested. As a result, Hume is optimistic that in this book he has, quote, advanced principles which not only will stand the test of reason and inquiry, but may contribute to the amendment of men's lives and their improvement in morality and social virtue, close quote. That is, this theory of the virtues, because it implies that virtue yields happiness, will induce those who read his book to become virtuous so that they may become happy. Yet a few pages later, in Appendix 2, Hume argues that self-love or self-interest, which he takes to be the desire for one's own happiness, cannot be the sole motive to virtuous action, and is not even the primary or typical motive. And it follows from one of his arguments for this position, which I'll explain in a moment, that beneficent actions, in particular, will not reliably bring satisfaction to those who don't already have the virtue of benevolence. Those who lack this virtue, which is one of Hume's two central social virtues, the other being justice, cannot in general expect to reap happiness by performing kind actions. Clearly, this is in tension with the claim of Section 9 that once people grasp Hume's account of morals, their desire to be happy will induce them to become virtuous and fulfill all moral duties. That latter claim is also hard to reconcile with Hume's own account of the nature of some of the main virtues he describes, which essentially involve the possession of certain attitudes or sentiments. If I give aid to others merely as a means to my own happiness, I don't possess benevolence as Hume understands it. I only mimic its external manifestations. I'll explain how these difficulties arise from Hume's accounts of virtue and self-love or self-interest, in the Inquiry Concerning the Principles of Morals, which I refer to for short as EPM, and argue that while Hume does not explicitly resolve them in that work, he gives us the materials there to devise a novel solution. If we pull together various elements of the ethical theory he articulates, we can assemble Hume's implicit instructions for becoming virtuous, in particular for becoming benevolent, as the means to becoming happy. They're different from the instructions of the ancient philosophers, and very much in keeping with Hume's conception of human nature. Indeed, it's a rather attractive strategy, though it makes the path to virtue and happiness sound a bit too easy. Okay, part two, how, according to Hume, his ethical system in EPM shows that the virtuous life is the happy life. Earlier in EPM, Hume argues, and he confirms in Section 9, that the qualities of mind that make up personal merit or virtue are those traits that elicit the feeling of approval when they're considered by a spectator who adopts what Hume calls the common point of view. That is, this spectator disregards her own private concerns and preferences and allows feelings to emerge that are shared by all human beings. The qualities of mind that elicit our approval under these conditions prove to be divisible into four general types, with many individual qualities falling into more than one category at once. The types are traits that are either immediately agreeable or useful, either to their possessor or to other people. There's a little chart on your handout that illustrates that. It's too simple because some traits fall into multiple boxes, but I put a couple of examples in each box. The two important social virtues, benevolence and justice, which are the subject of a long section in the book each, are first and foremost extremely useful to others, though they have some advantages for their possessors as well. Briefer sections in the book examine virtues that are useful to their possessor, him or herself, such as diligence, intelligence, and frugality, and traits that are immediately agreeable to their possessor or others, such as cheerfulness, dignity, and wit. Hume regards all of these as virtues, but of less importance than benevolence and justice. Hume thinks it's obvious that the virtues that are immediately agreeable or useful to their possessor, him or herself, those in that center column, quote, are desirable with a view to self-interest, close quote. This hardly requires elaboration. Turning to the virtues immediately agreeable to others, which is the upper right category, it's also obvious, he thinks, that, quote, the companionable virtues of good manners and wit, decency and genteelness are more desirable than the contrary qualities, close quote, since we naturally prefer that that our company be welcome to others rather than disgusting to them. So, of course, it's in our interest to have these virtues. It may seem that the enlarged virtues, as he calls them, of humanity, generosity, and beneficence, the social affections, could actually interfere with their possessor's individual advantage. Since, at times, they'll require their possessor to sacrifice her material goods, thwarting self-love. But Hume argues that this is not so. Before we can want something with a view to our interest, we must have what he calls an original propensity of some kind that gives a relish to the objects of its pursuit. That is, we must have an antecedent inclination that makes us enjoy that thing or activity. This might be a fondness for luxury, for example, but it might just as easily be an affectionate concern for the well-being of others. We always expend our material resources for the gratification of our sentiments, whatever they are. There's no reason to think we lose more by expending our goods to gratify our generosity than to gratify our avarice. And either use of resources is in the agent's interest if he has the requisite appetite. But if we had the power to design our own personalities and select the appetite that would form the basis of our happiness, we would choose, Hume says, benevolence and friendship, humanity and kindness, over avarice and most other appetites. All appetites give satisfaction when successfully gratified. But only these generous appetites give certain additional satisfactions. The very sensations of benevolence and humanity are, as Hume puts it, sweet, smooth, and tender. Sorry, sweet, smooth, tender, and agreeable, independent of all fortune, close quote. They give us a pleasing consciousness of ourselves as having done our part toward mankind, he says. And their successful gratification does not arouse the jealousy of others, but only their goodwill. That's all, if you're interested, that's all in passage number three on the handout. The virtue of justice, too, makes the just individual happier, Hume argues. Honest behavior on the part of all the members of society preserves the system of property ownership under which we all gain security and prosperity. Without it, there could be no society. There may seem to be an exception. A very crafty, sensible knave may realize that, while in general, honesty is the best policy for oneself, that policy is liable to many exceptions. And on a few occasions, it's possible to exploit the exceptions undetected and without causing general social dissolution. Such a knave will indeed lack a considerable motive to virtue if he is not repelled by such thoughts of villainy or baseness. Uh, That's um, passage number four on your handout includes most of what Hume has to say actually about the sensible knave, in case you're interested. But in ingenuous natures, the profit motive cannot overcome, as Hume puts it, the antipathy to treachery and roguery. I love this 18th century language. I would like to accuse our politicians of villainy and baseness and treachery and roguery if I can do that. Um, anyway, most knaves will overexert themselves eventually, overextend themselves rather, eventually. They'll try to get away with too much. And they'll be unmasked, leading them to lose everything, everyone's trust, which is a sad fate. And even if a few knaves succeed in their life of deception and manage to retain the trust of others, they lose out on the whole, Hume claims, for they, quote, sacrifice the invaluable enjoyment of a character, with themselves at least, close quote. Scrupulous honesty yields the joys of candid relations with others and the confidence in one's own good character that brings enduring peace of mind. Thus, the happy life, sorry, the virtuous life, is the happy life. Now, my purpose today is not to evaluate these arguments um, that, that Hume gives to show that given his theory of the virtues, the virtuous life is the happiest life. Some of them are better than others. His argument that a person who cares for others is usually happier than one who cares only for herself has considerable plausibility, although I will raise a brief doubt about it at the end. His reply to the successful sensible knave um, you're not going to enjoy peace of mind, he says. On the other hand, it's not as convincing. Clearly, though, Hume does think his conception of virtue is correct, and he does want everyone to become more virtuous. So suppose we are persuaded that Hume is right about what virtue is, and that he's right that the virtuous life will normally be happier than the life of vice. This is supposed to give us all an incentive to acquire virtue. Can it do so, given the rest of Hume's theory in EPM? And can we succeed in acquiring virtue as a means to achieving happiness? That's my main quarry today. So part three is about appendix two of EPM of self-love. It's about one argument there. The appendix called of self-love covers a range of issues pertaining to whether the interested affection or self-love could be the only motive or the most fundamental motive of benevolent and grateful actions. He's thinking mainly of those two virtues, benevolence and gratitude. Here let's focus on a particular argument that echoes one made by Joseph Butler, which you may be familiar with. Hume uses this to argue against the selfish philosophical thesis, which is the thesis that even though sincere friendship and solicitous concern for others do exist, in some human psyches, at bottom those feelings are really modifications of self-love. And unbeknownst to their possessors, they target only our own gratification. The humane man, according to the selfish theory, is someone whose self-interest is so directed as to give him a concern for others, while the self-interest of the person we call vicious and greedy is not so directed. The butlerian argument that Hume gives in appendix 2 is one of his moves, one of his moves against this position. And there's a more extended quote in number 5 on your handout. Hume reminds us that we have bodily appetites which lead us to pursue certain external objects, and these necessarily precede all sensual enjoyment. That is, it's only because we feel hunger, for example, which is directed toward edible things, that we seek and consume them and only so do we obtain pleasure by gratifying that primary appetite. This pleasure, in turn, becomes the object of another sort of desire, self-love or self-interest, the desire for our own happiness, which is secondary. Similarly, we have mental passions that also directly impel us to seek external objects, fame, for example, or vengeance, and we experience enjoyment when these primary desires are gratified. Without the primary inclination for an object such as fame, we could not reap pleasure from acquiring it. Self-interest, in turn, aims to provide that pleasure, and so gives us a secondary motive to fulfill the primary desire. The primary passion, quote, points immediately to the object and constitutes it our good or happiness. There are other secondary passions which afterwards arise and pursue it as a part of our happiness, when once it is constituted such by our original affections, end quote. So self-love has no or few objects without prior primary desires. Now, it's quite possible that from the original, these are Hume's words again, from the original frame of our temper, we may feel a desire of another's happiness or good, close quote. When we gratify this primary inclination, we likewise experience pleasure, which makes the fulfillment of our benevolent desires part of our happiness. And then our secondary motive of self-interest will aim at this gratification. The good of others is then, Hume says, afterwards pursued from the combined motives of benevolence and self-enjoyment, close quote. So benevolent feelings are not manifestations of disguised self-love, rather benevolent feelings precede self-love and provide it with its object. It follows from this, that if I lack the desire of another's happiness or good, I cannot gratify such a desire by giving aid to others, since I have no such desire to gratify. And so, I have no general reason to expect to gain happiness for myself by so acting. Of course, I might sometimes find myself in circumstances in which acting to help others will bring me other things I desire such as monetary profit or votes. And since the gratification of those desires is part of my happiness, self-love will move me to help others as a means to those satisfactions when they're available. That will sometimes occur, but there are likely to be many occasions where helping others will not happen to contribute to other things I desire, and in such cases, my desire to be happy will not prompt me to help others. Thus, it follows that the person who has few or weak humane feelings, cannot reliably or consistently promote her own happiness by acting to benefit others. Fulfilling the duties of beneficence is not, on the whole, a means to her happiness. One's desire for one's own happiness can only lead one to behave virtuously if one already has virtuous impulses. Hume does claim that all normal human beings possess at least a tiny spark of humane feeling though it might be too weak to move even a hand or finger of our body," as he says. That's in number six on your handout. So given that, won't a person who lacks the virtue of benevolence, who's not a kind and generous person overall, still obtain some tiny enjoyment from doing a kind action, since she thereby gratifies that weak inclination? this small spark would constitute kind actions a part of her happiness, albeit a very small part, and this resulting bit of happiness could become the object of her self-love. But this is no solution to our difficulty. If someone has only a minimal preference, other things being equal, for the well-being of another over his misery, which is all human insists on as the birthright of all normal human beings, the little frisson of pleasure of a person a person might get from relieving someone else's suffering, could never compete with the pleasure she would obtain by gratifying some other stronger desire of hers instead. For example, the desire to profit by exploiting him. For, as Hume says, every affection, when gratified by success, gives a satisfaction proportioned to its force and violence. That's back in passage number three. The happiness of someone who cares a great deal about wealth and power and has only minimal humanity will almost never be served by doing kind actions rather than selfish and ambitious ones can we reconcile this result with hume's claim in section 9 of epm that virtue as he understands it is a means to happiness okay we're now at part four which is the easy reconciliation so just to be clear there are two claims hume makes that are in fact fairly easy to reconcile, though this reconciliation still leaves a harder problem for later. It's evident that the following two theses are compatible, and I've got the two theses right there on your handout, one and two. One is self-interest is not the primary motive to virtuous action, and two is the life of virtue is a happy life. In seeing why these are compatible, we'll see the harder problem, I think, in a little sharper relief. For this purpose and going forward, let's focus on the virtue of benevolence in particular, which is what Hume focuses on in Appendix 2. A lot of what I say can be applied to the other virtues, but perhaps not all of them. Benevolence is a central virtue for Hume, though it's certainly not the only one. Hume is quite specific, as we've seen, that possession of this virtue involves possession of inclinations or sentiments of concern for the well-being of others. Inclinations are sentiments that move their possessor to act for others' sake. And he thinks ordinary observation shows that plenty of people have such sentiments and other similar disinterested and sociable desires. When a possessor of these inclinations succeeds in helping others, he gains a happiness of gratified desire according to Hume, which is a part of his overall happiness. And as we've seen, he also enjoys the sweet sensation of other concern itself, and the pleasure of winning the approval of his fellows. These are substantial sources of happiness. So the benevolent person attains a good deal of happiness. And of course, the person who has all the other human virtues as well obtains even more gratification and might very well be quite happy on the whole. It's also possible for someone who is already virtuous, for someone who's already virtuous, to be moved by self-love to persist in his virtue, or even to act more consistently in the ways prompted by his virtuous sentiments. Self-love can move him to seek further enjoyable fulfillment of his generous desires. So he'll have two motives to do good to others, kind feelings, his own kind feelings, and his self-interest. The virtuous person then has a happy life, and yet self-love is not the primary or typical motive in acting virtuously. His self-love does move him to act virtuously, but it's able to do so only because he antecedently has disinterested virtuous desires. So these two theses are perfectly compatible. Now we turn to section five, the harder problem. So, if we have virtuous dispositions and we gratify them, we will gain happiness. And this gives us that secondary self-interested motive to behave virtuously as well, but this fact, hardly warrants Hume's optimism that the desire for happiness will make people become virtuous who are not so already, and so will improve mankind. If someone lacks a virtuous disposition, how might the desire for her own happiness be an incentive to acquire the virtue or to act as that virtue dictates? Since she lacks the virtuous impulse, say benevolence to begin with, Acting for the good of others will not gratify any desire she has, except coincidentally. So it will not bring her pleasure or contribute to her happiness, except again coincidentally. Perhaps she could try to acquire the virtuous impulse so that by having and satisfying it, she could become happy. But what can she do to acquire it? Given her dearth of other-regarding feelings, simply acting in ways that will increase her own gratification, as she is now, will not make her benevolent or generous. Certainly Hume gives us no reason to think it will. Nor does Hume claim, as Aristotelian philosophers do, that repeatedly performing the actions that a benevolent person would do will awaken the sentiment of humanity within us. Aristotelians claim that, but Hume doesn't. It appears that the person, sorry, I skipped a sentence, there is nothing of the sort suggested anywhere in EPM. It appears that the person who lacks some or all of the virtuous dispositions, even if she knows that having them would give her a happier life, cannot make any use of that knowledge. Hume's own language suggests as much where he acknowledges that people fail in their social duties not because they don't know that possessing humane feelings would make them happy, but because they simply don't have sufficient humane feelings. If we don't have them or don't have enough of them to influence action, Hume's ethical system does not seem to provide any way to get them. The other aspect of the problem appears when we consider what Hume says about the nature of virtues and vices. Hume does not say enough about what he means by a quality of mind or a character trait. But what he does say proves that he takes at least some virtues and vices to consist not merely in dispositions to act in certain ways, but in the having of sentiments or the having of dispositions to feel sentiments of certain kinds. The benevolent person, one with the virtue of benevolence, experiences the sweet and smooth feelings of concern for others. The cheerful person, person with a virtue of cheerfulness, the cheerful person's good humor runs through the whole tenor of his life, Hume says, and the dignity of one who has that virtue preserves tranquility in his soul. It's possible that Hume thinks of some virtues such as diligence and frugality as predominantly a matter of what a person does day after day. But many human virtues are composed not only of what one does outwardly, but of the state of one's heart. With regard to those virtues that consist in feelings or emotive dispositions, then, in order to acquire the virtue, someone who lacks it would have to develop different feelings or dispositions to feel than she now has. So someone with only the weakest humane feelings, for example, would need to become caring if she helped the downtrodden over and over without genuinely caring about their suffering, but only in the hope that by doing so, she could increase her own happiness, she wouldn't qualify as benevolent. Similarly, someone who smiled and made optimistic remarks that masked her gloomy attitude would not qualify as cheerful. She would only exhibit a simulacrum of the virtue. Therefore, if habitual action does not change the heart, and if it's only real virtue, the proper state of the heart that brings happiness, dutiful actions carried out as a means to one's own happiness cannot achieve their t- intended result. Okay, So it looks like a pretty big problem. Part 6 is self-evaluation and reputation in EPM. We should take up the issue of reputation because Hume considers it important to an individual's happiness that others think well of him. Good repute, which he also calls fame, Quote, is often the grand object of all of a generous minded person's designs and undertakings, close quote. That's in passage seven on your handout. It's kind of a strange claim, but he does say that. In its pursuit, in the pursuit of good repute, we habitually, Hume says, survey our own character as if from the point of view of an outsider and consider how it appears to all who know us. This practice, quote, keeps alive all the sentiments of right and wrong, and begets, in noble natures, a certain reverence for themselves as well as others, which is the surest guardian of every virtue. Apparently then, then, if one already has a noble nature, one will develop reverence for oneself and others by this practice of surveying one's own character from the perspective of other people. But what of those who are less noble to begin with? Hume does not say, but a remark in the next paragraph is suggestive. This is from number seven on your handout. It's embedded in other things. Quote, our regard to a character with others seems to arise only from a care of preserving a character with ourselves. And in order to attain this end, we find it necessary to prop our tottering judgment on the correspondent approbation of mankind. Close quote. We try to see ourselves as others see us, so that we can come to feel, by means of a mechanism called sympathy, their moral approval or disapproval of us. We hope to receive by this act of imagination the pleasure of their approval and not the uneasiness of their disapproval. Hume argues that we come to feel, to a lesser extent, the emotions displayed by others because human emotions are, so to speak, contagious. But this borrowed appreciation is not, according to this last quote, the ultimate goal of our imaginative exercise. Rather, we hope to be able to make favorable assessments of ourselves. And we rely on the imagined judgments of others as the basis of our moral self-evaluation. Unbiased self-evaluation is difficult to achieve. And this is a way to correct our own errors in, in assessing our own character. Hume seems to think that such a survey of ourselves from the point of view of others will give a considerable incentive to become more virtuous. Since moral self-approval is pleasant and moral self-disapproval is unpleasant, if we engage in this process of self-evaluation, we'll certainly have an incentive to do what we can to obtain the pleasure and avoid the discomfort by making our character stand up to examination. Our self-love will have this as one of its objects. But if we lack one of the virtuous dispositions, such as generosity, cheerfulness, or dignity, how can we act on the knowledge that a spectator would disapprove that feature of our character? Here, too, Hume recommends no course of intentional action that we can pursue to change our sentiments for the better. Perhaps reflection on the opinions of others provides an incentive to act as virtue dictates, To help others make returns to our benefactors and the like, because we know that this will win us an undeserved reputation for virtue. For others will not see the feelings that lie within. It seems that self-love could prompt us to do that, but why would we prop our tottering judgment on the judgment of people we know are mistaken about us? Such efforts will not yield the satisfaction of knowing we in fact have a good character. So the problem remains. The process of reflecting on my own flawed character from the spectator's point of view with an eye to my reputation also fails to improve my character. Now, I'm now turning to section seven, which is a small detour about an essay Hume wrote called The Skeptic. Nine years before EPM, Hume wrote a quartet of essays that purport to represent, as he describes it, the sentiments of sects that naturally form themselves in the world and entertain different ideas of human life and of happiness. In these essays, Hume adopts a different persona in each essay. And he gives each essay the name of that ancient sect of philosophy, which each persona's position most resembles. He doesn't think of the essays as summarizing the ancient views. He thinks of them as, as revealing present day views in his time, but views that resemble ancient views. So he gives them the titles the Epicurean, the Stoic, the Platonist, and the Skeptic. In the Skeptic, in that essay, he takes up the issue of whether and how people can improve their own character by their deliberative, deliberate efforts. While much of the point of this discussion is to counter the position of the Stoics, that the study of Stoical philosophy produces virtue, and thereby happiness, the general question of how to improve one's own character with an eye to attaining happiness is before Hume's mind as well. At first he says that even the most reflective individual has little ability to, quote, correct his own temper and attain that virtuous character to which he aspires, close quote and that there's no philosophy that can render all mankind virtuous. But he thinks that nonetheless, philosophy can indirectly improve one's character, and he lists some ways in which it might do so, including, seri- including claiming that serious study softens and humanizes the temper, attention to unnoticed noticed circumstances can strengthen our, or weaken our feelings toward an object of our passion, and, important for our purposes, habit developed by adhering to a strict resolution to act well can reform the mind and quote, implant in it good dispositions and inclinations close quote. And here's a longer quote from that. If he constrain himself to practice beneficence and affability he will soon abhor all instances of pride and violence close quote. But this self-discipline cannot take shape unless the individual in question is, quote, beforehand, tolerably virtuous, close quote. And the influences of philosophy in general are too subtile and distant to affect common life or to eradicate our natural propensities. In a long footnote, he provides a list of philosophical reflections and advice that can partially reshape the passions, and a list of lively authors to read to fortify the mind against the illusions of passion when real life provides us with difficult tests. But he ends it by saying, despise not these helps, but confide not too much in them neither, unless nature has been favorable in the temper with which she has endowed you. Well, the skeptic is a problematic source for our present purposes. First, as we've seen, Hume is rather equivocal there about how effective any method can be in changing one's sentiments from vice or self-indulgence to virtue. These activities and reflections might help, but they might not. And they will do no good for the person who lacks all virtue to begin with. Second, Hume doesn't claim to speak for himself in any of the four essays in this grouping. But rather he writes as if he were a representative of each sect in turn. Each of the four essays in places attacks the very positions propounded in one or more of the other essays. It's true that the skeptic is by far the longest of them, and it advocates the same metaethical view that Hume had recently propounded in his treatise. And furthermore, Hume, when he comes to write EPM, he actually reuses a paragraph from the metaethical portion of the essay, The Skeptic, in Appendix 1 of EPM. So certainly some of the views of the persona that Hume creates in The Skeptic are Hume's own views but it's likely that some are not, or didn't remain so. For example, the skeptic's extreme contempt for human life as a dull pastime, not present in EPM, and his pessimism, his pessimism in the the essay The Skeptic, about the human capacity to achieve virtue and happiness as a result of studying a philosophical system. Human EPM is filled with optimism that his system will lead to the moral improvement of mankind, The skeptic is very dubious that any system can do that. Third, the methods of moral self-improvement that Hume's persona suggests in the skeptic, however diffidently, are not offered at all in EPM. While by 1751 when he wrote EPM, Hume seems confident that we can achieve virtue and thereby happiness, he makes no indication that we should do it in those ways, by acquiring greater knowledge of circumstances, by repetition of dutiful actions, by reflection on the shortness of human life or the sufferings of others. That's all in the skeptic, none of that appears in EPM. And finally, the persona of the skeptic in Hume's essay of that name is much less sanguine than is the Hume of EPM, that even the successful cultivation of virtue, should we somehow manage it, will lead to happiness in a reliable or at least a simple way. In The Skeptic, he says that happiness, sorry, in The Skeptic, he says that a largely vicious individual with the minor virtues of self-confidence and cheerfulness can be quite happy. And And a largely virtuous and admirable person with the minor vice of a melancholic or pessimistic temper can be miserable in spite of his many excellences. But as we've seen, Hume thinks the thesis that happiness is the result of virtue follows almost trivially from his account of the virtues in EPM. So the sensible only the sensible knave worries him at all in EPM, and he thinks he can handle that. So there's a good reason to think either that Hume never himself believed everything the skeptic says in his essay of that name, or that Hume has changed his mind. And his considered opinion in EPM is that the happiness of the virtuous is not so easily spoiled, nor the misery of the vicious so easily remedied. Thus the skeptic for all its other excellences, that essay, the skeptic for all its other ex- excellences, does not shed light on Hume's doctrine in EPM that his account of virtue will inspire us to become more virtuous as a means to our own happiness. All right, section 8 is the solution to the harder problem that I think is available, the solution is available to human EPM. I don't claim he articulates it explicitly, but I think he could. Within EPM, and particularly in the part of Section 9, just prior to Hume's discussion of how virtue serves self-interest, we have some materials that are not available in the skeptic and are not fully developed in the Treatise of Human Nature either. These elements would enable Hume to provide effective instruction for improving one's own character in such a way that one could achieve happiness or greater happiness by doing so. So I'm now going to try to lay out these instructions, though like the instructions in recipes for cake or concrete, the quality of the finished product depends on environmental conditions as well as on the quality of the ingredients and the actions of the one who follows the recipe. However, there's much we can do to make sure that the product comes out as intended. Recall that on Hume's view in EPM, every human being, or at least everyone who's not grossly psychologically abnormal, has a spark of the sentiment of humanity within her, even if in some cases it's too weak to move any of her limbs in action. So even if we lack the virtue of benevolence, we have this minimal concern for others. Hume argues that this minimal sentiment is sufficient to enable all of us to feel moral approval and disapproval, and so to make moral judgments. The other people whom we encounter in our social lives all have this sentiment as well, whether they're virtuous or not. And all of our sentiments of humanity are directed toward the same individuals, namely everyone, and react alike to everyone. Our humane feelings yield us pleasure at the good of others and pain at their suffering. For Hume, it's part of human nature that we all like to associate with other people. Our lives are impoverished without company. When we're in company, And we learn in conversation or by their facial expressions or whatever that other people's feelings match our own, our feelings tend to be strengthened by what we gain from those other people by the mechanism that Hume calls sympathy. This mechanism operates on us very powerfully when other people have feelings that resemble ours. According to one of Hume's metaphors, the contagion of parallel sentiments causes our heartstrings to vibrate in harmony with those of like-minded people. For example, if I have favorable feelings toward the same object as others do, when I receive their feelings by sympathy, those sympathetically acquired feelings that I now have will greatly strengthen whatever favorable sentiments I had at first. Now, if I take delight in jazz music and others are annoyed by it, my enjoyment of jazz will not be reinforced by their annoyance, because their feeling differs in what Hume calls direction. That is, mine's favorable, theirs is unfavorable. But where our sentiments all take the same objects and produce the same response, they're they're all positive or they're all negative, the other people's sentiments, once communicated to me, strengthen mine. So if I like jazz and go among others who like jazz and we talk about our feelings about jazz or enjoy jazz music together, I will come to enjoy jazz even more. Now, everyone favors human well being over human suffering. Thus, when we associate with any other people whatsoever, provided we become aware of their humane feelings, our own sentiments of humanity are reinforced by theirs and become much, much stronger. And Hume says as much. This augmentation of our humane feelings is not subject to our direct control, but it will predictably occur so long as we choose to go out among people in society and become aware of their feelings about human welfare and harm. And the more we associate with with people, particularly with humane, caring people, and discuss such feelings with them, the stronger our feelings will become. Humane feelings, of course, are desires for the well-being of others. The reinforcement of our humane feelings in company makes them strong enough to move us to act even if before their rein- this reinforcement they had no such influence on us. We gratify them in part when we act to relieve suffering and spread happiness to others, and thus they are primary desires to do good to others. They also feel sweet and smooth, pleasant in themselves, and when we satisfy them by acting to benefit others, we reap pleasure from this desire satisfaction. Furthermore, other people will approve our kindness, giving us the pleasure of a good reputation. Thus our newfound benevolence will help to make us happy. At least, in part, if it's combined with other virtues. Then, what is the role of self-interest in pursuing and obtaining the virtue of benevolence as a means to happiness? Well, it works as follows. If I'm not very benevolent, but I wish to be happy, here's how I should proceed. Provided I have the spark of humane feeling that's almost never absent from any human heart, I should go among people, especially humane, virtuous people, and talk to them about their feelings of concern for others to make myself vividly aware of their feelings. I cannot make myself more caring by trying to care, and perhaps not by doing good works either, but by indulging my inherent desire for company and putting myself in a position to become aware of other people's sentiments, I will find myself becoming more caring as my native humane feelings are echoed and reinforced by those of other people then once I begin to feel the promptings of stronger concern for others, I shouldn't just lie down till that feeling goes away, I should make the choice to act as those feelings prompt me. This will give me the pleasure of satisfied inclination, which will reinforce those growing humane desires. The whole psychological and behavioral process can build over time in this way, so that in the end I possess a sincere concern for the well-being of others, which is the genuine virtue of benevolence. And I harvest the happiness that this virtue brings to its possessor. These instructions are very different from anything Hume considered in the skeptic, and they don't involve the sorts of self-improving exercises usually advocated by the ancient philosophers or by Christians. There is no concentrated study, no reflection on the shortness of life or redirection of our intention to things that make what we desire less appealing. There's no need to struggle against recalcitrant natural emotions. There's no harsh discipline in which we force ourselves to act in ways that thwart our sentiments in the hope of changing them. Our natural sociability will lead us to mingle with others who are equipped, as we are, with a natural preference for human good over human suffering. And once we're aware of their sentiments, our natural sympathy will amplify that feeling. All we have to do is notice, in light of Hume's system, that we will serve our own interest if we acquiesce in our budding, generous desires, and then do so. And soon our humane sentiments will begin to grow strong, will move us to more and more kind actions, and will yield satisfactions that gratify our self-love as well. It's a lovely, easy path to benevolence and happiness. Okay, so part nine, of course, is, is this a plausible program for acquiring virtue and happiness? A few closing thoughts. There's something to be said for this set of instructions. We do tend to absorb attitudes from others. We are fundamentally sociable animals. If Hume's right that we all share some minimal concern for other people, as recent research by psychologists on infants and toddlers seems to suggest, though I can't vouch for the soundness of their research, then this might indeed be a good way to become more caring. But this Humean recipe for virtue and happiness leaves us with a couple of nagging questions. Probably a lot of nagging questions, but I'll talk about a couple. First, if going among people can make us benevolent, why isn't everyone benevolent? For this, for this I've tried to provide some answers, some hints of what I think Hume would say. Hume claims in EPM 9.9, section 9, uh, paragraph 9, that because we all have the sentiment of humanity in common, it's likely to be a topic of discourse and to be cherished in society. It's the basis of our shared moral sentiments by means of which we make our moral judgments. It's been argued by um, other commentators, uh, Jacqueline Taylor in particular, that in EPM, Hume uses conversation as a means by which people adjust their moral sentiments, approval and disapproval, to those of others and also strengthen them to become motives. If that's correct, then conversation can also serve to reinforce the sentiment of humanity itself, the source of moral sentiments. But this will only happen if we indulge in the right sort of discourse, so that sympathy can transmit humane sentiments between us. If we only talk about farming or chess or fill in your other favorite subject that has nothing to do with the human weal and woe, then no humane sentiments will be communicated. Cultivation of humane feelings requires certain topics of conversation, or at least of shared attention. It doesn't have to be conversation. We could all watch a video about how people are doing in some impoverished region and that would, we see how our how, how our seatmates react to that. Second, what if I go among, so that was the first worry. Second, what if I go among the wrong sorts of people? For example, greedy, ambitious people who suppress their spark of humanity as a form of weakness, who mock me as a bleeding heart if I express concern for others who are suffering. It seems that my native desire for company could lead me to such companions almost as easily as it leads to warm-hearted companions. Probably I'll associate with whoever's around me, and if I find myself in a certain sort of social environment, they may be people of that cold-hearted type. And then it seems I will never develop enough humanity to give me the virtue of benevolence. So I will fail to acquire it, and if Hume is right, fail to be happy. Perhaps we need to add a requirement to Hume's formula, something I think he would agree with probably. Since you have read EPM, and you know that the virtue of benevolence is part of what you need for happiness, be sure to go among benevolent people. So perhaps this problem can be solved. Now, my ambitious and uncaring associates may gain the profit and the fame that they seek, but Hume has shown me that they're missing out on very great rewards because of their lack of benevolence. I need to fan the flames of my own humane feelings and I can choose to go elsewhere for companionship and conversation. I must make an effort to select my influences. Still, that remains relatively easy, much easier at least than deliberately reshaping nature. Finally, there's still a question whether Hume is right, that the virtue of benevolence leads to happiness. This is a serious difficulty, and I'm only going to gesture at it here. It should be acknowledged, but I don't have a solution. A tender concern for the well-being of others may sometimes be a pleasant feeling to have, sweet and smooth, as he describes it. But if I focus my attention on the starving children in Somalia, this feeling becomes quite painful. And when I do what little I can to help them, rather than feeling the pleasure of satisfied desire, I feel the frustration of being able to do so little. The more humane I am, it seems, the more pain I will suffer on their behalf. This last is a genuine worry about Hume's whole argument for the rewards of virtue as it concerns benevolence, and it's not one I can alleviate here. But it's possible that Hume also has some elements of his system that would dispel it. The search for them, however, must be left for another occasion. Thank you. Oh, good. virtue. He's talking about virtue as a means to happiness. So sure, if I reflect on some very you know, aggressive profit seeker who doesn't give a damn about anybody else and I say, I could be that person or I could be someone who's benevolent which would make me happier that's a kind of empirical question I might not, I might definitely have a meta-desire, I don't want to be that kind of person. Uh, I don't want to be a person who has those desires rather than strong, benevolent desires. And if I've got that meta-desire, then that's one more element. If I satisfy that, that's another gratified desire, another piece of my happiness. But if my other concern, my feeling, my humane feelings constantly lead me to be miserable, because there's so much suffering in the world and I can do so little to alleviate it, then the satisfaction of that meta-desire might not compensate for
4: that. Um, so on, on your version of Hume, he, he thinks that we can't, we can't derive pleasure from beneficence unless we have an antecedent desire to help other people, right? Yeah. So I was curious about what what the argument is for that claim on your or view. So to take your example of jazz, um, you, know, y- you wander into a jazz club and you feel great, and then you start desiring to hear jazz. You didn't need the antecedent desire to hear it in order to feel pleasure. And it seems like all, there are many examples of that kind of phenomenon. And there doesn't seem to be any conceptual reason why that couldn't be true of beneficence. Um, so if it's, if it's not a conceptual reason, is it just supposed to be an empirical fact that as it turns out, we're incapable of feeling pleasure from helping out others unless we already have this, this antecedent desire? What, what is the status of that claim? It's a really good
3: question. I think I've puzzled about this myself. Human, especially in EPM especially in Appendix 2 of EPM, where he's trying to argue against the selfish theory, he adopts this argument that, that comes from Butler that says you really don't have very many, your, your, your desire for your own happiness has very few things it can latch onto if you don't already have a bunch of desires for for things outside yourself. Like, I want to be happy, but how can I be happy? By satisfying desires I have for things outside of me that's the basic idea. So if I like jazz, that's a desire for something outside of me. That is, it's not a desire for my happiness, it's a desire to listen to the music, I guess. Um, It's supposed to be on a parallel, it's supposed to be parallel with wanting food or beverages or wanting fame or vengeance, where it's not, it's not, I want to be happy, and so I'm going to look around, oh, let's try vengeance, see if that makes me, it's rather, if I want vengeance, vengeance will make me happy. So I think the model is supposed to be that I have some antecedent disposition to like jazz. Mm-hmm. Now, it sounds crazy if you say, I have some antecedent desire for it, to listen to jazz. Maybe I've never heard it in my life. Um, but I think he would try to, try to interpret it as some kind of antecedent disposition. I'm the sort of person who would really like jazz if I only had the chance. So once I've heard it, then I have a desire for that pleasure again. I don't know. It's hard, it's hard to work this out on Hume's behalf, because what he says in EPM suggests that there are very few things that will give us pleasure if we have no antecedent drive pushing us toward them. And that does seem kind of crazy. Why aren't there a whole lot of things that would give us pleasure, but we don't know it? And if we happen into them, we just get pleasure.
4: Right. right? So, And it does
3: sound that way. So I'm trying to fiddle with it and see whether there's any more reasonable interpretation, especially since in the treatise, he doesn't talk about it that way.
4: Mm. I mean, one puzzle is what the word antecedent means. Mm -hmm. Is it uh, causally, chronologically? Because one way of thinking about a disposition to like jazz is just that you you would feel pleasure.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it's actually
4: not clear what else that means.
3: Yeah, I think that's a good point. What he's saying in this argument I there's mean, there's a there's a, there's, a, there's an issue about this argument. Uh, I'm not sure this argument. I'm not sure it's successful in Butler's hands. I'm not sure it's successful. human was successful in doing what he wants to do with it. Um, what a consequence of given the way he sets up the argument, it really sounds like. There has to be not just a disposition. Because you're right, it's gonna be there's gonna be a problem analyzing what a disposition is, a disposition of find jazz, unless it, it's just to it analyze its disposition to get pleasure. Um, it sounds like what you have is some kind of antecedent purposive drive. So it's analogous to the drive for food. So it's not I think I'll get pleasure from food, it's Man, food is what I need. That is, I have a need. And and then a desire, for, a desire for fame is going to be something that's antecedent as well. Um, or a desire for uh, fame doesn't work that well. He has a completely different analysis of fame in a treatise, and that's that's a problem. But vengeance is a better thing Somebody does me wrong, and I'm filled with a desire for vengeance. What I want is not my pleasure. What I want is his suffering. And I might even pursue his suffering to my own detriment says, that's that's not a self-interested desire. That's the kind of thing that's antecedent. Then when I get the vengeance, I might feel terrific. And then, in the future, my self-love might might reveal to me how the next time somebody wrongs you, you could get the joy of vengeance that will become part of myself, of my happiness. It works for those cases. I don't think it works very well for the case that you brought up. I think that's right.
0: Uh, we we'll just getting at
4: the, the framework here. Uh, does human of the resources are claiming that, say, if none of us desire benevolence, none of us desire friendship, well, could it still be the case that benevolence and friendship are good, even if no one desired it?
3: They'll be good if we feel moral approval for it. But given his account of the origin of a feeling of moral approval, it's not going to exist unless there's that <coughs> minimal spark of concern for others and everybody. Because he traces, he thinks everybody is capable of feelings of moral approval and disapproval, but we are capable of that because we're capable of caring at least a little about the well-being of others. So if no one cared about that whatsoever, we wouldn't nothing would be morally good or
5: bad. I see. Okay.
3: Now If everybody had the spark and was capable of judging things good or bad, but no one was actually benevolent, would that be good? Well, I suppose you could imagine someone who was benevolent,
5: and you would approve that person. And so they would be good. I, I, I do have sort of some worries about that claim that we all have this, at least a spark of it. Yeah, you know, I, I think I think of um, Ivan Karamazov and the Brothers Karamazov, who, who in his rebellion <coughs> says. Uh, uh, Know, do me care about the suffering of others? No. Mm-hmm. It repels me. I'm horrified by it. And the closer the, they get, the more I am I I find it abhorrent. They people who need things smell bad or you know, they, just all, and so and so and so I, I just find it interesting that he would claim even the the minimal spark claim, um, without having a deeper sense of human nature that he wants to playing there. So so that's one worry. I'll I'll set that aside a little bit, though, because as a Kantian, the other worry I had (laughs) when when you were saying, well, there's some obvious problems that arise from this. I was expecting that one problem that would arise from the the way that you um, resolve the problem is that one would worry that it seems a rather passive process of becoming a benevolent person. You just put yourself in the right situation and wait to start feeling the vibe. You know, I mean that's kind of what what the sympathy mechanism suggests. Now I suppose you say that I choose to put myself in those sorts of situations or choose, but I'm sort of worried about where this capacity to choose comes from. If what I what makes me do things is, is if I'm getting the right vibe from other people, um, one worries that there should be more of an autonomous capacity, even to train one's feelings.
3: Okay, let me address the second one first. Yeah. Um, you're not going to find a lot of autonomous capacities in here. It's
5: very sad. But, <laughs> <I know. laughs> um,
3: but the way I the the, so the solution that I've reconstructed on his behalf does give you some choices to make, and it gives you uh, some motives. It, it identifies the motives behind those choices. Yeah. So I want to be happy. I see because I read E.P.M. that the way to become happy is to acquire virtue. So I want to acquire the various virtues, including benevolence. So I say, okay, I better hang out with people and reinforce and awaken my nascent spark of humanity. So I do that. So that's a, that's a, an intentional action that's recommended. And then there's the other intentional action where I said, once those humane feelings begin to grow, I'm now going to have some inclination. They're stronger now. So before they were too weak for to move even a figure of my body. But now they're stronger and they're going to give me some inclination to actually help people. And I shouldn't lie down and wait till that goes away. But I should choose to do it. Because if I do it, then I, get, I will reap the rewards and that will strengthen my humanity. So what do I do? I go among people and then when prompted, I act. That's all that's, that, that is available that I see in implicit and the mirror. Um, you're not going to get, you won't get the, the autonomous agent reflecting on the various impulses that he or she experiences and endorsing or selecting one. That kind of thing is, is just not, you need to make sure. I guess
5: the thing I worry about on the autonomy thing is I want to be able to hold everyone responsible for their failures. And if, if someone mm-hmm. could say, I'm sorry, the vibe just didn't come, <laughs> you know, it's just, it just wasn't strong enough yet, yeah, what could I do?
3: That's a real issue, actually, in the t- interpretation of Hume. Because as I read him, he wants to hold us responsible as well. Yeah. But he doesn't care that he's holding people responsible, that we all hold one another responsible for things over which we might not have control.
5: Yeah.
3: If the vibe doesn't hit you, you aren't virtuous. Right. Right? You, have, you have vice. You don't have good character. And, and we are entitled to feel blame toward you, even though there was nothing you could do it. <laughs> But the prediction is, if you're psychologically normal, and you take the steps that you can't control, that will, will awaken your humanity. And that leads right into great segue into my response to your first question. Um, never mind Ivan Karamazov, Ted Bundy, right? I mean, right. think of, of sociopaths. Hume is not ignorant of that. He, he thinks that there are exceptions, but he, he has uh, his conception of those people is that they are
1: abnormal
3: in the way that someone is abnormal maybe who's born without a limb or born without a heart or a bo- a heart, I mean, never mind a heart, <laughs> born, a heart <laughs> <or> <laughs> born without a pancreas that takes a man to that is human beings as a species characteristically have that spark but you will have the occasional person who doesn't and that's going to be someone, Hume says, who not only can't become benevolent, but won't be capable of moral judgment either. They won't be able to distinguish right from wrong, good from evil. Which sounds kind of right. That there are people, and that's what we say about—I guess—sociopath is no longer the current term. There's another term, but I don't keep up with the DSM. But um, but there are people like that for whom moral arguments hold no sway. And they also are lacking in what today we call empathy. And and that's pretty much his view. Some people are born that way and there's nothing you can do about it. But for the vast majority of people, for people who are psychologically normal, these are, it's there. It doesn't mean that everybody's virtuous. It would have to be developed in the right way. And he's happy to grant that some people naturally are, have, have kinder temperaments than others. Right. So, you know, you just you, you, you size yourself up, you see what nature has given you, and if nature has given you a kind of cold-hearted temperament, rather than following the Kantian model of exercising will and acting in accordance with duty anyway, you what you do is you try to work by a temperament.
2: Oh, you. <laughs> I want to skip to a student by Helen, you're next in line, but I'm just I'm gonna to skip to a student Uh Olivia. Um, I'm curious Mr
5: of um, realism or relativism <coughs> of virtues, because to some extent, it sounds like he's saying that there are these virtues, there's benevolence, there's intelligence, and these are real virtues. But at the same time, he also says that you can, um, you know, these these virtues come to fruition in the context of your society, so they could look very, very different in different places. Um, I mean, if, if you were growing up in the savannas of Africa, and you went out into society and said, let's talk about virtue, you get a very different of virtue than you would going out into society here, which seems far more relativist. So there, there's so,
3: that's such a big topic. There's so much to say about it. Okay, first of all, Hume's not a moral realist. He's, he does think that what makes a trait of virtue is the fact that people, when they think about it in the right way, in a way that's unbiased and yet sympathetic, will all approve of the same traits and disapprove of the same traits, understood as general traits. But then he's got a little book called Dialogue that's usually published along with *EPN*, And it's, it's, it's really great. It's one of the best things ever written about relativism. And he argues that ultimately his view is not relativistic, That ultimately moral relativism is not the truth. What you have are different levels. You have at the, at the level of detail, there are lots of differences in the, in the ethical attitudes of different societies. But at the most fundamental level, people approve the same basic types of traits. And so there's one set of basic types of traits that is the set of the virtues. And that's determined by human nature. He says the details vary for all kinds of reasons. They vary because the Bushmen and the Kalahari have a very different way of surviving. And so they're going to stress different traits. Their benevolence or generosity for them is going to take a very different form, but they're not going to endow lectureships it's an expression of their generosity okay so they take a so the society in which you live is a particular society in that sense of society the modern sense of society in which you live is going to determine the, sp- the specific details about what what form the virtue of benevolence takes of how it's expressed of the degree to which for example the degree to which people are expected to help the other individuals directly, and the degree to which they're expected to contribute to charities that help other individuals, or even to governmental programs that help other individuals. So yeah, that's going to vary a lot by society, but he thinks that, he says it's like the Rhone and the Rhine have the, same, have the same source, and they run off in different directions. So given the, the lay of the land, the physical land and also the cultural traditions of your society, Um, Virtues will take different forms, and also there will be different emphasis. So if you're in a society that's constantly at war, virtues like military valor will have a great deal of importance. And if you're in a more settled and peaceful society, that's just not going to matter that much. So those differences, too, will will play a role. But he thinks that, he does believe, but he does believe he has a a thoroughgoing enlightenment era confidence that there's such a thing as human nature. be molded in various ways, but at bottom, he says we all are, have bodies that are put together with the same kinds of organs and limbs and organized in the same way. And the same with our minds, the same types of passions, emotions, the same types of desires, different, just as our bodies differ from one another, our it agrees in our passion, what dominates, what doesn't dominate, that varies, but the basic system is the same. And that's why, even though his 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 view, his his ethical theory is Anti, is anti his anti realist or not realist anyway, even though his his view is that what virtu- the character traits are aren't good or evil because of the way human beings respond to them. He still thinks that we can we can have um, interpersonal agreement about it. Without a okay, Helen, then. I should just hold on to this because I keep
2: running all this. Okay. Doctor, go ahead.
5: If I understood you
0: correctly, a lot of the argument concerning benevolence depends on the fact that this spark of humanity, which is the seed of benevolence, is universal, at least for all normal, healthy people. What can we say about whatever that other spark is that is the seed of other virtues, like courage, uh, that seem to be really vitally important for a good human life and and for a well-functioning human society but that maybe aren't universal? I mean, maybe they don't have that spark. and just then have no hope of being courageous at all? (laughs) How how do we address that situation?
3: Uh, I think that's a wonderful question. I wish I hadn't given an answer for you. Hugh doesn't talk about that much. He talks especially courage. He talks almost not, he mentions it as a virtue, but he gives almost no account of it. At one point, he says it's a holy virtue of males. But maybe okay. that's not what he means. I mean <laughs> It's really he, So where would that come from? Um how could it if, if you if you don't have benevolence, okay, here's a theory about how to get it. If you don't have courage, is there some seed?
5: Maybe there is.
3: But now I'm just making stuff up because there isn't enough in the text a response.
4: Um, given that um, Hume says that in order to be benevolent, we go out into the world and help people, essentially, is one main way. How would he. Well, we start
3: by going out just hanging out with benevolent people. Yeah. And then we get motivated and then we help people.
4: Well, how would he address the happiness of
0: an introvert? Uh, I mean, can you be happy as an introvert or do you have to be an extrovert to be happy? <laughs> That's the question.
5: <laughs>
3: <laughs> there may be a problem for someone who has, who's introverted to a pathological degree. But when he went, on, the word society is always misleading because. In human days, society often just meant company. Just meant being with friends. Right? Being To be in society in somebody's society. If you and I had lunch together, I would be in your society. Just meaning in your company. So, introverts, too, presumably have family, have friends with whom they are comfortable. So, provided they have some family or friends who exhibit some Humane feelings, they too can become benevolent. You don't have to associate with a lot of people, so long as you associate with people who exhibit in a vivid way feelings of concern for others.
4: Um, you mentioned that, uh, so for, for the not terribly virtuous person, they're able to gain some sort of virtue by being in the company or society of the virtuous. But in the case of a virtuous person in the company of cold-hearted people, you said that they are simply not able to be happy. But
3: No, no, not a virtuous person in the company of cold-hearted people. A not-so-virtuous person. I know I'm, I mean. Yeah, you, know, okay. you said that,
4: but I'm bringing up the case. Like, does it work the other way around? Oh. Is it is it? Uh, is it is, so would that person, would their character as a human diminish in the company of cold-hearted yeah, people? Great. Or is like, they just <laughs> like, simply not able to be happy?
5: Well,
3: if they're always in the company of, of cold-hearted people, um, they're gonna be feeling moral disapproval a good deal.
5: So, moral <laughs> well,
3: disapproval isn't very pleasant to feel, so that will diminish their happiness to some extent. And that's a good question. What if they have the virtues? That's supposed to be the royal road to happiness. But they're stuck with a bunch of, with a bunch of cold-hearted associates. And and that's an objection, and it's a good one. Um, but I thought you were asking about more than just will they be happy, but also will their no, virtue it, diminish?
4: Yeah, so I'm wondering, like, as a coping mechanism to avoid feeling such a <clears throat> disapproval of their uh, cold-hearted companions, will their character diminish if they feel less virtue? They won't be getting
3: the reinforcement of their benevolent feelings that they would have gotten if they had, had warm-hearted companions. And so won't they become gradually less, less
5: benevolent? I don't, think, I don't think they would have to.
3: The, the process for reinforcing our feelings only works when we have feelings that have the same direction. When I associate with people who have positive feelings for the same things that I have positive feelings toward, my positive feelings are get reinforced. Um, if, if I have positive feelings toward, toward helping others, and they have negative feelings toward helping others, my, po- my positive feelings not going to get reinforced. But there's no reason that my Selfishness would get reinforced because their selfish feelings are, are, are positive feelings toward what benefits them. And mine are positive feelings toward what benefits. You. So they don't have the same direction. I mean, he, he does say this explicitly that our ambition, our avarice, those things are always in conflict. Right? My desire for gain is going to be in conflict with other people's desire for gain. And so those don't reinforce each other. But my desire for the well-being of any human being coincides with other people's desire for that. So those will reinforce each other. So there's no reason, in principle, I don't think, that he would have to say that I would become less caring by being with people who don't care the way I do. Um, But what I, I I forgot something else I was going to say, sorry. But I might be, oh yeah. But I might be less happy I associate with people who, who are cold-hearted, because I'm surrounded by by jerks. <laughs> I don't think that's implausible either <laughs> that you'd be less happy if you're surrounded by a bunch of selfish selfish jerks. So, um, so yeah, I, I don't. Uh, I think that that is the kind of question that we should press on here. I think there's arguments to show that virtue will reliably bring happiness. And he's not saying virtually can going to bring you happiness in every possible situation. He's arguing that as a general rule, if you have the virtues, that will produce happiness. Of course, you have the virtues and be behave by a meteor, and you're not happy. But, uh, but as a general rule, there are often people who have the virtues, but find themselves in settings where they're surrounded by others who don't, and are going to
4: isn't that going to reduce their happiness? Some the human would have to say yes. Um, I, I was uh, more on this uh, learning or uh, associating people and gaining from their influence, happiness, and virtues uh, to cultivate the parts of our character. Um, what is the vital part of those interactions? Um, Does not watching an advertisement
0: on television cut it? Joining a Facebook group and never doing anything cut it? how much interaction do you need before you get the benefits?
3: I didn't talk about that in in nearly enough detail because I didn't want you to be sitting here all night. Um, Hume thinks that the way in which we get our emotions reinforced by the emotions of others requires some kind of vivid awareness of the other person's feelings. So, listing someone as your Facebook friend, that's not going to cut it. But he is thinking primarily of watching people's faces and listening to their voice, listening to what they say about how they feel, and also seeing their facial expressions and the tone of their voice. But he also talks about the way in which emotion can be transferred in the theater. So even an actor who is pretending emotion, if the actor does a great job of it,
5: will make you feel
3: what he's pretending to feel. So it's going to be something like that. So surely with modern media, he would say, "You could, you, as long as you're watching a vivid depiction of other people's emotions, that can awaken yours." And so we could, our our um, benevolent feelings could be awakened by watching some film or some video about the the, the generous, the, the generous that represents the generous feelings of others to us, and how they are moved by the play of other human
0: <laughs> um, my question is about um, how Hugh thinks about people who would like the spark, these sociopaths, people who um, like that. You said um, that we can, those of us who have the spark, um, those of us who have concern for others, can and rightly do evaluate these people as um, vicious. But mightn't they, in turn, um, evaluate us as you know, bleeding hearts, suckers? Um, and, and, uh, Someone's right. Yeah, well, given that perspective, does Hume have any reason for thinking of them as defective or deficient? You compare being born without this to somebody who's born without an arm or something. Um, might we, might there be, might they make the case that they're in fact born missing some bad thing that most human beings have? Um, would there be any uh, basis? Would, would Hume have an interest in or any resources for? claiming that they're deficient, disease, defective, as opposed to normal human beings.
3: Hugh doesn't talk about this much at all. He does seem to have a kind of functional view that there's a certain type of life. This is a little bit about this in the treatise, and I'm always a little hesitant to carry this over to again, to but he does say there, there's a, a type of life that's characteristic of the species, and so a horse is swiftness, is important for a horse, and it's not important for a turtle. He doesn't say turtle, I thought that, but he's the horse example. But there are certain, certain characteristics that, that, are, that make up a part of the life of a, of a given species, and a creature that is born without them is consequently defective. But there isn't a theory there. Um, I can imagine him therefore saying that a, a human being was born without that spark, also is incapable of engaging in a typical kind of human life because human life involves, it's, it's, we're social creatures, and it involves a fair amount of paying attention to the needs of others and, and being touched by them it's on some occasions. How can you have friends? How can you, I mean, so some mostly end up in prison. Um, and, 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 and on medication. I mean, we hear about these extraordinary sociopaths who are very successful living up in, out in the world, but they're very few. And, and so I think Hume would, would would have the option to make that case that uh, it's the person who lacks it who is the defective one. Because that's the one, that's the individual who cannot function as human beings generally do, given the species that we are. But
0: that sounds like it might just be a kind of statistical thing. In a world no, where most no, of us I have think this, so. I mean, you, so anyway, or at least one way somebody might try to spin that is: in a world where most of us have this spark, then the sociopaths do very poorly; they end up in prison because um, we we exploit all the time. Oh. So, um, uh, um,
3: well, it's not a statistical argument. The claim that this is characteristic of species is not a statistical argument. It's huh. a kind of Aristotelian. Today we be, always I'm want to read it as okay. statistical, right? Mm-hmm. That means more people you know, more people have it than not. But I mean, think about dental caries. Most people have some some dental cavities. More more people have it than not. But but dental caries is not normal, right? It's not normal. So how do you define normal? It's not statistical, okay? So and, and someone who's thinking of things in the way that Aristotle did, and some of the other ancients that he <coughs> read, influenced by Aristotle, would be thinking about statistics. They would be thinking about something like. What today they call species typical function, and and but but this is not. I'm going way beyond anything that he explicitly says. There are just a lot. There are there are a lot of ev- evocations of Aristotle, especially in the treatise. There's some of it also in EPM. In EPN, though, he does say if you had a person who was incapable of any kind of fellow feeling, that person wouldn't be capable of any kind of moral evaluation either. And he also says, if, if our sentiments were wired up the opposite way, so that we always enjoyed others' suffering. He doesn't deny that we sometimes enjoy others' suffering, by the way. He's, he's, he's quite honest about that. But if we only enjoyed other people's suffering, and that was a universal state of mind, our, our whole ethical system would be reversed. So he does say that. So what are we to conclude from that? I think, but it's, it involves a certain amount of speculation, but I think he would say the human species is, it, it's just con- a contingent fact that the human species has something that you would call species, typical normality. There are characteristics that are functional, that enable the species, the, the species to live the type of life that, that is typical of it. And one of those is having a certain amount of, of fellow feeling.
2: Well, I'm afraid we run for another time. So, um you might want to continue afterwards. And yeah. I'm were you going to, to sign book plates? Too? I'm happy to sign book
3: plates if, or if
2: anybody wants them. And I hope they get the paperback version because it's a lot cheaper. <laughs> 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 so, so let's play.